Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we're in chapter 10. The reading will be verses 34 through chapter 11, verse 18. So it is a lengthy reading. And uh, we live in such a um, soundbite generation. Nobody, nobody seems to have the ability to focus like they once had and, and uh, able to contain that. I, I struggle with that when I preach because I do want people to get the flow of the narrative that what we are preaching is the Bible. Martin Luther said this. He said, the Bible is alive. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And so as we read today, give thought to that as uh, uh, we listen now to the word of the living God. Beginning in verse, verse 34 of chapter 10. Now what's going on? Cornelius, uh, who was a Roman officer, has been converted to Christianity. Before that, he was a God-fearer. He was seeking God, but not yet uh, believing in Christ and he's experienced an amazing uh, conversion and as a result of that he um, opens the door through him God opens the door for bringing the gospel to the nations there are two major big historical redemptive events that happen in the book of Acts between the ascension of Jesus and his coming back that even have repercussions and effect for today. One is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, the missionary to the Gentiles, and the other is Cornelius the centurion, who opens the door for Gentiles to be included in the people of God. Hear now God's word. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the wor word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, Peter's favorite word for the cross. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have just received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa, praying, in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet, descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And may your word that goes forth from your mouth today prosper where you send it. May it work your will into our hearts. May you make us alive and uh, stir our souls by the truth we are looking at today. And we will give you alone the glory because you alone are worthy. And so, Peter's sermon here, which is really brief, uh, somewhat abbreviated, uh, was a gospel presentation interwoven with a very new insight that God had just given him. And the insight is this. God cares for and announces salvation 
to all the peoples of the world. The distinction between clean and unclean, that is those who are acceptable and those who are unacceptable, has changed. Something new has occurred with the coming of Jesus Christ. And so God cares for and announces salvation to all the people of the world. First, Peter denied that God shows partiality along ethnic lines. Now, this was not a new idea because it echoes Moses who called Israel to love aliens because they had been oppressed aliens in Egypt and because the Lord their God is not partial and takes no bribe. One of the things we have to cultivate as Christians is there is a time when we were not Christians. You're not born a Christian. It is a response to the gospel. As God's good news goes out, you either receive it or you reject it. But if you receive it, then something amazing happens. But sometimes we forget what it was like not to be a believer in Jesus Christ. We forget how we thought back then, how we behaved, how we looked at other people. And so one of the things that I think immediately jumps out to me in Peter's sermon is that we need to have a sensitivity toward people who do not believe and need to treat them with compassion and mercy because we were once there ourselves. The second thing I see in Peter's sermon is that he affirms that God welcomes people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Now, he is not claiming here, as some may see just from the surface of the words, he is not claiming that God's welcome is based on our works or their works, for he goes on to promise forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus' name. Rather, doing right, such as Cornelius, uh, with his prayers and his alms, displays or demonstrates a heart that fears the Lord, casting itself on divine mercy and humble trust. Third, Peter stressed that Jesus Christ, sent by God to tell the good news of peace to Israel, is Lord of all, not just the Messiah of Israel. And so Peter is clarifying that when you look at the person of Christ, he is Messiah. He fulfills all the prophetic hopes of Messiah, but he's more than that. He's Lord over the entire world. Peter is saying that. Peter prefaces his message with, You yourselves know. For he assumed that the circle gathered around a God-fearer like Cornelius, who enjoyed the respect of the Jewish people, would have in the bank an awareness of the controversial ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. God had indeed prepared his salvation in the sight of all people. And Peter now realizes that the Gentiles are not merely onlookers, but beneficiaries of the light of revelation. And so Peter's summary of the gospel highlights the fact that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, that is a reference to the descent of the Spirit upon Jesus in his baptism. And in the power of the Spirit, Jesus established God's kingdom by assaulting Satan's domain. 
healing and liberating those who were oppressed by the devil, and blessings flowed from him because God was with him. Nevertheless, Jesus was killed by the leaders of his own people in a most shameful and humiliating way. By hanging him on a tree, and the reason Peter uses the word tree here rather than cross is because of Deuteronomy 21:23. Hanging a person on a tree is a sign of God's curse upon him. The curse of God is upon him. Yet the divine repudiation that hanging on a tree symbolized is set alongside in this sermon the vindication that God awarded Jesus in the resurrection. If Jesus arose as the Holy One, on whom death could not keep its grip, whose curse was he bearing when he hung on the tree? You need to understand something about biblical terminology here. The idea of being blessed and the idea of being cursed. The idea of being blessed in the Bible means if we obey him, the old covenant of works said, if we obey him, he will bless us. He will turn his face toward us. He will cause his grace to fall upon us. If we disobey him and break covenant, he will curse us. He will turn his back on us. He will turn away from us. And rather than blessing us, we will be judged. And so the idea is, if Jesus was sinless, if he was the holy one, if he was the pure one, the ultimate clean one, whose curse is he bearing when he hung on the tree? Paul answered it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so Paul is making clear what Peter is referring to here is that when Christ went to the cross, it wasn't his own sin that he went to the cross for. The cross is not a, a martyr's death. The cross is not even a great example of love. It's not that. What the cross is, is Christ loving his people so much that he's willing to be their substitute. He's willing to take the legal ramifications of our failure to obey God's law. He gets cursed so we can be blessed. That's Christianity. Christianity isn't being a good person. Christianity isn't trying to live up. Christianity is recognizing that I fall short. I'm a sinner. I violate God's law. I'm not perfect. I'm not holy. And somebody's going to have to take care of that because God knows my sin. And I should be cursed for it. God should turn his back on me for it because he's holy. He is of purer eyes than, be, than to behold evil. And he cannot even look approvingly upon sin. But because God the Father loved us so much, he was willing to give his son to us to bear in his body our curse. You remember that study story uh, in the book of Genesis about Abraham entering into a covenant with God. And we're told that God told him to take the sacrificial animals and cut them in half and make a pathway between the animals. And then God appears in a theophany, an appearance of God as a flaming torch. 
And God, in that flaming torch, goes between those animals. And what he's saying is, is that Abraham, if you don't live up to the covenant that I've entered into you. Now, usually, both parties in the covenant would walk between the animals to signify that I pray this happens to me if I fail to keep up my end of the agreement. But in this case, Abraham did not walk between the animals. God did in a form of a flaming torch, pointing ultimately to Christ hanging on the tree, bearing the curses of the covenant on our behalf. I can look at God and feel accepted and clean and blameless. Why? Because Christ bore my curse. He took my sin away because he loves me and because God loves me. And so what an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. Peter and his fellow apostles were witnesses God had selected in advance to testify not only to Jesus' pre-crucifixion deeds of power and mercy, but also to his post-resurrection life and reign. The testimony that Jesus is risen from the dead was not the fruit of wishful thinking or hallucination because they ate and drank with him after he rose and they died for saying it. People don't die for a lie. Nobody would die knowingly for a lie. They were among uh, the many convincing proofs that Jesus rose from the grave. But what does that tell us? The resurrection tells us that if Christ was bearing his own curse on the cross, he would have never resurrected. But he was bearing ours, and it tells us that the price has been paid in full. And that he was delivered up for our sins, but raised again for our justification. So that when I look outside of myself, and I stop trying to save myself, and I rest myself completely in Jesus Christ, then, and then only am I completely forgiven and given the righteousness necessary of Jesus' obedience to the law to stand before God, forgiven and clean and righteous. It's not anything I produce. It's not an achievement of my own. It is total, absolute, 100% gift. Otherwise, it would not be grace. You can't dilute grace. You can't have 99.9999% grace and then the rest of it something I did. Then you would no longer have grace. Grace is pure, undiluted, and that is precisely what Peter's talking about. And so he continues to preach here and he tells us that he charged the apostles to declare his future role as judge of the living and dead. Peter later would tell the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill that Jesus' resurrection had put everyone everywhere on notice that their judge had been appointed to God by God and their turning from idols, that is Jesus' replacements, to the only God who saves and lives must not be postponed. You see, Jesus, according to the scriptures, and here's where the, the scriptures cut, He's either going to be your savior or he's going to be your judge. One or the other. And, you know, people don't like binary stuff today. Well, I'm sorry. Truth is binary. It can be. And in this case, he's either your savior or he will be your 
judge, depending on how we respond to the good news of his message. Now, Peter is just beginning his sermon. He's just sort of getting out of the blocks, and he starts mentioning the prophet's testimony about Jesus. I'm sure he would have had much more to say, but he gets divinely interrupted. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit shows up and interrupts his preaching and floods the Gentiles' hearts with faith at the mention of forgiveness in Jesus' name, and he fills the Gentiles' mouths with the praises to God in the tongues of the nation. They begin to praise God. He witnesses the regeneration and outpouring and falling upon the gift of the Spirit upon these people. In these few sentences... Peter has presented for us the truths at the heart of the good news. Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord of all, was empowered by the Spirit of God to liberate the devil's captives, died under a curse deserved by others, was raised up by God to reign and to judge, and this is according to the Scriptures, which promise forgiveness for sins to everyone from every people who believe in Jesus. When we think about that, it should move our hearts that we were so loved that Christ moved toward us in compassion. I want to share a little bit more about this to sort of drive home this truth a little more clearly. This is deeper than saying Jesus is loving or merciful or gracious. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness and the sin and the brokenness of the world all around him, his deepest impulse, hear this carefully, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. And we think just the opposite. We think if Jesus really sees me as I am, if he really knows all my thoughts, motives, words, and deeds, how could he, being the Holy One, ever move toward me? Surely he turns his back and walks away from me because I live in shame and I live with guilt and I live with a sense of failure. And yet, when you read the Gospels, what do you see him doing over and over? He moves towards sin and suffering. He doesn't move away from it. He's drawn to it because of the bowels of compassion in him. When the Bible uses bowels there, it means the core, the ultimate core of Jesus toward the fallen world is not condemnation, but compassion. He moves toward it. One way to see this is against the backdrop of the Old Testament category of that which is clean and that which is unclean. In biblical terms, these categories generally refer to not to physical hygiene, but to moral purity. The two cannot be completely disentangled, but moral or ethical cleanness is the primary meaning. This is evident in that the solution for uncleanness in the Old Covenant and Old Testament was not going and taking a bath, but rather offering a sacrifice. The problem was dirt, well not dirt, but guilt. Not dirt, but guilt. The Old Testament Jews therefore operated under a very sophisticated system of degrees of uncleanness and various offerings and rituals to become morally clean once more, making you acceptable to be in the presence of God. 
One particularly striking part of this system is that when an unclean person comes into contact with a clean person, that clean person becomes what? Unclean. You have touched the unclean. Moral filth and dirtiness is contagious. Think about Jesus for a minute. In Levitical categories, he is the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. Whatever horrors cause us to cringe when we see naturally unclean and fallen would, would cause Jesus to cringe all the more because he has our humanity without sin. We cannot fathom the sheer purity, holiness, cleanness of his mind and his heart. That simplicity, the innocence, the loveliness of the Lord Jesus. And what did he do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when he came into contact with prostitutes and lepers and tax collectors? Did he run away from them? Did he turn his back and walk away? No. He moves toward them. Pity floods his heart. You see the longing of true compassion in the depths of his being. He spends time with them. He touches them. He touches them. He hugs them. Sometimes a warm hug uh, uh, can do more for us than words of greeting alone. We can all testify to the humaneness of being touched. But there's something deeper in Jesus' touch of compassion. He was reversing the Jewish system, the ceremonial law. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, hear this carefully, when the clean one touches an unclean sinner, he, Christ, does not become unclean. The sinner becomes what? Clean. Wow. Jesus is Christ earthly ministry was one of giving back to undeserving senators their sinners not senators sinners you know, faux pas maybe senators their <laughs> humanity <laughs> let me repeat that Jesus's, Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was one of giving back to undeserving sinners their humanity when we see miracles occur in the gospels we sometimes think that that's God's interruptions in the natural order. We're so used to a fallen world that sickness and disease and pain and death seem natural, but in fact, they are the interruption. Jesus walked on earth, rehumanizing the dehumanized and cleansing the unclean. Why? Because his heart refused to let him sleep in. Sadness confronted him everywhere he went. So wherever he went, when he was confronted with pain and longing, he spread the good contagion of his cleansing mercy. Thomas Goodwin, the Pur Puritan, said, Christ is love covered over with flesh. I would say compassion covered over in flesh. You pull back the flesh of a Stepford wife, of the Terminator, you get what? A robot. Pull back the flesh of Christ, you find loving compassion if compassion clothed itself in a human body and went walking around the earth what would it look like we don't have to wonder just look at jesus in the gospels now as we move on to point number two and i'm going to get through these next two points at rapid speed 
So don't start fidgeting and going, oh my gosh, he's only a third through. See, I can read your minds up here. At the mention of forgiveness in Jesus' name, the Holy Spirit falls on uh, these Gentiles. His mission is to glorify the Son. He fell upon the Gentiles who were listening to Peter. And the two words that I see used here is he speaks of the Spirit falling upon them or the Spirit being poured out upon them. But by the way, what's the big deal about the Holy Spirit and being a Christian? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Why do we so long for Him to indwell us? Because the Holy Spirit's mission and calling as the third person of the Godhead is to take the things of Christ and show them to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit makes the person and work of Christ real to us. Otherwise, you can't see it. Otherwise, it means nothing to you. Jesus means nothing to you. You can't possibly see it. You can't possibly grasp it. You cannot possibly understand it. Why? Because we're born spiritually blind. We're lost. We're spiritually dead. We don't resonate to that kind of thing. It just doesn't, it doesn't add up. It doesn't speak to us. But when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon a person, it opens their eyes and they see reality and they see the truth. And the main truth the Holy Spirit wants you to see and wants me to see is the person of Christ, his beauty, his glory, his loveliness, his compassion, his attractiveness for our soul. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride, the Bible tells us. And we see in him that beauty that the Spirit shows us. And this is what happened at the so-called Gentile Pentecost. The descent of the Spirit in the home of Cornelius parallels uh, the day of Pentecost. Uh, Gentiles are now welcomed as children of Abraham, not through circumcision or commandment keeping, but through faith in Christ alone, alone, alone. And so the Spirit signified His presence to the Gentile believers by enabling them to speak in tongues the very same thing that happened at Pentecost. And these tongues are languages that are foreign to the speaker. In other words, it would be like if I just started speaking Farsi up here. I don't, I don't know a word of Farsi. But if I did, you probably ought want to run out the door. But if I did that, that's not a native natural language to me. I know three languages. English, kind of. Greek, a lot. And Hebrew, pretty good. But I don't know Farsi. And so what happened was... When they spoke in other tongues, people understood them, and it was a sign signifying the reality of the supernatural ability to speak in intelligible human dialects at Pentecost. Now here, it doesn't use the word other, but I wouldn't make too much of that. Uh, the Holy Spirit fell on them, Peter says, just as it had on us at the beginning. And so the Gentile believer's speech corresponded to the disciples in its context. The mighty works of God were declared. Now Cornelius and his associates were extolling God. Do you know what it means to extol God? It means to make God great. What is your life all about? Is your life about making me great? Or is it about making God 
great. And what is the mark of the Spirit? When the Spirit indwells us and works in us, He brings us more and more every day to the thought of making God great. He's already great. We can't really make Him great. But we extol Him. We talk about His greatness. We make Him great toward others. And so the Spirit falls upon this group. And finally, faith is accompanied here by baptism in the name of Jesus, in which new disciples were publicly numbered with Jesus' people, named and claimed as Jesus' property. Peter's question, and it's rhetorical, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Can anyone prevent water? Links Cornelius with the, the convert from Ethiopia, Ethiopian eunuch, where Philip baptizes him. And so God has welcomed outsiders. Let me say something about baptism too. Because people just seem to see baptism as some sort of external rite, but it's more than that. When a person is baptized into the name of Jesus, you are marked. You belong to him. You no longer belong to yourself. You are purchased by him. You are his, as it were, property. He owns you. You may say, nobody can own me. Well, that's tough. Because either the one who saves you will or the one who judges you won't. But the, wonder, but, but the wonderful truth here is we are marked as belonging to him. Those who have tasted and experienced his grace. Now, let me get to the third point. So what happens? Well, word gets out that Peter has done some very controversial things. Back in Jerusalem where people were still having to do with circumcision and the clean laws and unclean laws, Peter met a firestorm of criticism over his now notorious friendliness with the uncircumcised Gentiles. What we see now, and why Luke takes such pains to record God's initiative in breaking down the wall of ceremonial regulations, uh, we begin to understand why, in response to the Spirit's coming, Peter phrased the question, can anyone withhold these people from being baptized? However, at the church in Jerusalem, if that question had been asked, if they could, they would have forbade the baptism of the Gentiles until the latter were circumcised to show their commitment to keep all the regulations of the law of Moses, ceremonial as well as moral. And so God had provided corroborating witnesses. Six guys go with Peter. They see what's happening. They authenticate it, that it was real, that the Holy Spirit had fallen on them, and God had bypassed circumcision and welcomed the Gentiles, not by becoming Jews, not by being circumcised, not by placing themselves under the law, but rather through faith in Christ. That's what happened. And so that relativized, to say the least, this whole concept of circumcision. And rem just think about this for a minute. All your life you have understood it one way. And that one way is there are our people who are right, who are good, who are holy, who've been circumcised, who attempt to keep the law, who offer all the sacrifices, and we are separate from the other the goyim the gentiles we're separate from them thus 
how hard would it be to draw the conclusion in yourself, we're better than they are. We're superior to them. God has given us all of these things alone, and now we celebrate them totally against the whole heart of God. God, even in entering into the covenant with Father Abraham, intended for Father Abraham to be a blessing to whom? All nations. It's all over the Old Testament. The Jews were supposed to be a light to the nations, leading them to a relationship with the real, true God. But they turned it into, I'm better than you. Sometimes Christians can come across as so stinking self-righteous. I have, uh, I remember one time that I, I worked up the courage to go to Pam, and this was probably 20 years ago, so the answer's irrelevant now, but 20 years ago. I went to her and I said, well, I've been married to you for 20 years. If there's one thing you could change about me, what would it be? Now, I thought that just took amazing courage. And I didn't expect to hear much other than, well, maybe you could lose some weight, or maybe you could do this or get a better job or whatever. You know what she said to me? She said, sometimes your stinking self-righteousness is so, so rotten, it, uh, it appalls me. She was, she was, it was insufferable. That was the word I think I heard, insufferable. Now, what was I to say to that? No, I'm not. Well, what's that? Self-righteousness. It's kind of like asking if you stop beating your wife. Yes, no. Yes, that means I used to, right? She told me I was insufferably self-righteous. And that was one of those moments where God said, okay, the woman who loves you most in this whole world just said something to you you probably need to listen to. And I began to remember how you can become so self-righteous. We're the good people. We're the right people. We're the ones who are on God's side. You know, God hates that. He despises that. I used to call self-righteousness, I still do, the halitosis of the soul. It is the bad breath of the soul. When you have self-righteousness, you don't know it, but everybody around you smells it, and they sense it. And that's what this church was in Jerusalem. The self-righteousness reeked. When Peter goes back, he was met with suspicion. What mattered more to them than the news that the Gentiles had believed the message of Christ, that they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit? These Jewish believers were not only circumcised themselves, as all Jewish believers were, and these Gentile proselytes, but were also adamant that Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus must undergo circumcision in order to join the church. What mattered to them more than the news that the Gentiles had believed and been baptized with the Holy Spirit is the kind of food that they ate. <laughs> whether or not they were kosher, whether or not Peter was kosher the whole time he was there. The circumcision party responds, but Peter responds back. And he answers the charge of defilement through table fellowship with uncircumcised men as his accusers label the Gentiles categorizing uncircumcision as a disease. 
But he tells the story all over again. And I'm not going to repeat it because you've already heard it a couple of times. Of what exactly happens with the sheet vision. Everything that came uh, in the sheet vision, all these foods that fell before Peter, God says, kill them and eat them. Take them, kill them and eat. And Peter says, but I've never eaten any. And God says, what? Don't call what I call clean, unclean. And so Peter had to learn that. And as a result, the Holy Spirit fell upon these people and um, the wonderful glory of the gospel shines through. Peter's report, as he answers back, silences the objection of his accusers. But you've got to understand something about religious people and silence. It does not mean they agree with you. As a matter of fact, silence from anybody usually means they don't agree with you. So has been my experience. But they're met with silence. But they did say one really good thing. They did say, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Just because the objections were silenced didn't imply universal assent. But it does stand good that they recognize God has granted repentance that leads to life. When Jesus first appeared on the earth, he said, repent, repent. That was his message, repent and believe the gospel, repent. What does it mean to repent? Well, to repent means you're going in this direction, away from God, and you stop and change your mind. <clears throat> in the Greek, it's metanoia. Meta means to change. Noe in the Greek means mind. Metanoia means I'm walking in this direction away from God. I change my mind. I turn in this direction and I walk to God. Now let me tell you a little secret. Nobody in here can do that. In your own strength and in your own ability and by your own efforts, you could never do that. Because you, you are walking away. And until God gives you the gift of repentance, which he's willing to give to anyone who asks, that enables you to turn away from self-centered living and this world living and turning to him to receive the wonderful gift he offers freely to us in Christ. And so the glory of this passage is, is that God's mercy is wonderful. Since its gift is undeserved by its recipients, not dependent on their worthiness, but expressive of God's mercy, repentance is always an amazing grace, producing a life that is overflowing with thanksgiving. Why am I a Christian and my family member is not? Why am I a Christian and my neighbor's not? Why am I a Christian and my coworker's not? Why am I a Christian and my enemies are not? Why? Is it anything in me? Is it that I'm smarter than they are? Some of them, but not many of them. Is it because I'm better than them? Is it because I'm more moral than them? No, 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 no. The reason why you're a Christian and someone else isn't is that God has granted the gift of repentance to you. And there's only one person to thank forever for that. And it's not you. It's Jesus. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace today, your grace that works in us that which is according to your will, and we pray that as we continue to grow as believers in Jesus Christ, we begin to magnify and extol and make great Jesus and begin to see that we have every reason to be eternally grateful for who he is and what he's done for us. Father, drive these truths home to us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.